Hello, and thanks for joining me on episode 14 of Shelf Love, where we discuss romance novels worth reading and use them as the text to discuss identity, our relationships, and society that we live in. I'm your host, Andrea Martucci, and this week I'm joined by Fumi B, a romance reader, reviewer, and aspiring writer. Fumi is a fierce and passionate advocate for Black romance, which has a strong indie publishing community as a result of being shut out of many traditional publishing opportunities and accolades. As she says in this episode, when you're being shut out of something, you build your own and you build together. Fumi shares her own story of becoming a romance reader, which proves that libraries create readers, and we discuss who is worthy of a happily ever after. This week's Romance Worth Reading is Equivalent Exchange by Christina C. Jones. We discuss themes of therapy, health literacy, and what Black contemporary authors are doing to destigmatize mental health in their communities. We also talk about how books might not be for you, but why you should still read them. Heads up, some content warnings for Equivalent Exchange include off-page domestic and sexual abuse, and we discuss the impact of these events on the characters' lives. I'll have more information about upcoming episodes, including the 2019 Superlatives episode, after my discussion with Fumi. Do you write? Okay, so yes, I do write, and it is like my ultimate goal in life to be a writer, but you know, millennial imposter syndrome, working a real life, like not real life, but like a full-time job. I find myself, you know, slightly making excuses or just being kind of self-conscious about putting myself out there. But it is my goal to publish something one day. That was going to be my first question is how you spend your days because you have a career outside of Romancelandia. Yes. Ooh, how do I spend my days? So I work in the healthcare field. And so typically I'll wake up at 4 a.m. and take care of people until 4.30 And I'll do that four times a week. And then I come home and I like to decompress, eat something good. And then I'm, I'm always reading. Like I have my Kindle, it's on my phone. So I try to find something just to decompress, which often means I just reread my favorite books over and over again, because it's so easy and fulfilling. (laughs) I'm a huge rereader. And if I can have a sour beer and put these feet up because the dogs are barking after work, then I'm pretty happy. (laughs) Uh, That sounds amazing. I'm glad you mentioned that you enjoy sour beers because that's definitely thematic for today's book. Yes. I love the brewery, the brewery background of this book, but they shaded sour beers in this book. They did. And that hurt me to my core because it's the number one thing I drink. I was like, how dare you? (laughs) What's your favorite sour beer? Okay. So my favorite sour beer has to be, oh my gosh, it has to be, it's real. I don't even know the company, but it's called Raspberry Crush. I love raspberry flavored everything and raspberries that are real and not you know, red dye number 40, but they have this raspberry crush. It's, it's like a warhead. It reminds me of just like candy from back in the day. So 10 barrel brewing company. Did you look it up? I did. So <laughs> it might be, isn't it a white can yes. with red lettering? Yeah. Yes. Love that beer. Yeah. That's, a, I'm sorry. I'm like a quick Googler. I'm like, what is it? I can never remember the names of things. So um, I can't either. And I won't lie. Like a lot of times I'm like, this is a cute package and it says tart and I just buy it and it's gone. That's definitely how I buy alcohol, particularly wine. You know what? I don't know anything about wine. Is it in my price range? And do I like the packaging? That's it. Yeah. I'm. You know, wine just pops up in my life. And I commit this huge crime 
and anybody who wants to come at me for it, I welcome it. But I ice my red wine and like often drink it in plastic cups. <laughs> so <laughs> I am not your wine girl. I have no respect for it. <laughs> I just drink it. I love everything cold. So I do ice all wine, lots of ice, like it's a pop. Do you think it improves the flavor? You know, I don't even think it improves the flavor because truthfully, if it's if it's room temperature, I do think you get more of the essence of wine. I just don't like it room temperature at all. I want my teeth to chatter. Sounds like your mom was a big romance reader and you were very active library card users. Tell us a little bit more about your origin story with romance. So I feel like I've always just loved romance, like the idea of Barbie and Ken. When I watch cartoons, looking back, some of my favorite things were any type of like baby love between the characters. But the biggest blessing in my life was my mom deciding to live in front of the library. So if I'm in the back of my house using the restroom and I look out the window, I can see our public library. And so the minute she trusted me to walk across the street, across two lanes, and she's very, very safety conscious. So I had to pass that test a million times. She got me a library card and I was free to go over there as much as I wanted. And my schools, so all three of my schools, my high school, my middle school, my elementary school, are also within walking distance of my house in the library. So it was nothing for me after school to go to the library or during the summer to go. And we didn't have a lot of money, but I mean, books were free Mm -hmm. over there. And so I was like, eight and I knew how to put in requests for them to buy books. And I was ordering books from other library systems. And so I was really just lucky to have that. My mom's a reader too. So we would always just go to the library to have a good time. And what really got me initially into romance was those covers. I was just like, what are they wearing? What are they doing? I need to understand this. Those covers just completely got me. So I very quickly became obsessed with reading historical romances. And I didn't even know my mom was necessarily reading romances that much until I started dabbling into reading. And then I looked at her bookshelf and I was like, oh, so we're doing the same thing. (laughs) That's when we just kind of joined forces because I was going to the library so young. I had my own card. She didn't look at what I checked out. I wasn't like monitored in that way. Mm Mm-hmm. So I kind of was very on my own when it came to my books. I actually looked up and I was like, oh my gosh, you're reading all of these romance books too? And I remember one time she kind of glanced at a book and was like, isn't that a lot for you? And I was like, is it? And she just was like, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) How old do you think you were at that point or when you started getting mostly into romance? I hadn't read romance that had sex in it until I was 13. And I remember this because the first book I ever read that had sex in it was Judy Bloom's Forever, which is so cliche because that is a lot of young girls' first book. And I remember being so confused because it kept saying, she comes, he came. And I remember asking this older girl on the bus, I said, they're already in the room. Where are they going? The author is not telling us when they leave the room. And she was like, oh, no, girl, that's not what's going on. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's so 13. That was me too. I feel like if you're reading it and you're intrigued by it, you're old enough. Agreed. You're fine. So speaking of libraries, one thing I was thinking about was 
how Romancelandia is a bit of an echo chamber and there's certain books that are really big on like romance Twitter or Romancegram and then you kind of go to like the bookstore at the airport or the grocery store aisle or what's on the shelves at a library and they do not match up. They're very different universes of books. And part of that is with a lot of indie published books are not necessarily available in print. So you're not going to like see them physically in those places. But it seems like a lot of people who are not dedicating a lot of their time to kind of like focusing on the romance industry. Like I think you and I and a lot of people who are really active on Twitter and Instagram. Like we spend a lot of time immersed in that, but there's a lot of people who are big romance readers who aren't doing that. And they're just not seeing the same books. Thinking about my own library experience, my libraries have not had the most diverse selection of books. And that really influences if you are a big library user or you primarily find books in the places I mentioned, I mean, you're just not going to stumble upon books written by diverse authors or featuring diverse characters. Has that been your experience as well? What are your thoughts on that? It definitely has been my experience. And I kind of touched on that in that essay that you had mentioned, because I became a huge reader of historical romance. And the way that I read was through the library. I had to, um, just because, you know, we all know it racks up when you're buying things mm -hmm. from the bookstores. I didn't actually have computer access for a long time in my own house. If I was using the computer, I had to use it at the library in like 30 minute increments. So I wasn't really devoted to scouring the internet for books and stuff. I really only was privy to what was in the system mm -hmm. and maybe a little bit of word of mouth. So I found myself really having no diversity. Most of the books I had were white characters, heterosexual relationships. It, it completely lacked any diversity. And it was challenging because when they had books that were diverse, if they had some black books, it was just one type. And that's one of my biggest gripes is that they'll take one type and it's everything. Like there's urban romance, which is a very specific type of black romance book. And it's basically the equivalent of like, if all you could get was Amish romance books <laughs> in the library. Like if that's all you could get and that was synonymous with your whole section, which there's nothing wrong with Amish romance. I just, we know that's not the gambit of romance with like mainly white characters. And so if you didn't want to read urban romance in my library, you weren't reading books with black people in it. It was like urban romance. And then it was like, you know, Invisible Man, which is just a really big jump. Yeah. So it wasn't until I really got on my own had my own laptop and computer and was like, you know, I would love to find something different. There's, It's got to be out there. And one book led to me finding a whole a whole new world in a, in a community. But it is challenging to find that diversity in the library, the library system. You are famously a huge Beverly Jenkins fan. Oh, yeah. What are your top three Beverly Jenkins books and why? Oof. The big hitters. Okay, but you know what? I'm prepared for that. Number one is Indigo. So that's actually not my favorite Beverly Jenkins book, but I was just explaining this to my mom as we got to the bottom of a bottle of wine, that <laughs> I need like every Black woman who's ever felt bad or just ever kind of been a little frustrated by their portrayal in the media 
to read that book. That's how you want to be loved. That's how you want to be treated. I don't think there's any bigger ode to diverse love than Indigo. She put everything into that. It is such a good book. So definitely Indigo. My second book that I recommend, but is my favorite one, is Breathless. She has a wonderful character named Portia who I really relate to, who's had a lot of responsibility on her shoulders and a hard pass. And she's very independent and trying to keep that independent. And she just meets a strong man who knows that being strong doesn't have anything to do with belittling the woman, who is really willing to bide his time until she's comfortable and the relationship gets where they need to be. So I love Breathless. My third would be Captured. It's set during the time period of slavery. So the emancipation's not happened. It is so intense. Like, even though I know it has a happily ever after, this was one of those books where I was like, Miss Beverly, I need you to deliver this soon because my stomach hurts. But in the best way, wonderful coupling, very intense, great history. To reiterate, it would be Indigo, Breathless, and then Captured. Okay, Indigo Breathless Captured. All the one-word titles. You know, she has a lot of one-word titles. Yes, she does. Indigo, Breathless, Captured, Forbidden. Rebel. Nighthawk. Tempest. Is Nighthawk one or two words? I'm acting like it's one. I don't know. (laughs) It can be one. What do editors know if it's not? A lot of the Black women indie romance authors are doing a lot for mental health. And I think they're working very hard to break the stigma that exists just naturally, but a very large stigma that exists internally in our community. In this book, I didn't realize I had been subtly seeing what they were doing. And this book kind of threw it in my face and made me look back on everything I had been reading over the past year. And I was like, why are we not talking about this? Yeah. Yeah. I love therapy and talk about it a lot and one of the questions I was going to ask you later was basically do you think that generationally millennials have normalized therapy in a way that like has attached at least amongst ourselves has attached much less of that stigma how much of that do you think is generational hmm well It's so hard for me to answer those generational questions. I think every generation tends to answer questions like their generation did all the work. (laughs) But what I can say is that I think social media has done a wonderful job of putting you in contact with people who you just would have never spoke with. So you get to read about other people's experience and it's not just you. So even if you're in a home where therapy is not a thing and therefore probably your friend life reflects that too, you can get on social media and get in contact with someone who's in a similar situation as you, who looks like you, who thinks like you, and you can see that they're going towards this intervention. And if they can do it, then I can do it. So I don't know if I would say millennials, but I would say technology has done a good job of allowing people to see things that their environment doesn't have. Yeah, that's very true. Have you ever listened to, I'm just going to keep talking about this podcast, but it's called Where Should We Begin? It's Esther Perel and she's like a therapist. No, I've not heard of it. Tell me about it. Okay, so she basically conducts a couples therapy session on the podcast. It's like an audible original podcast and everything is kind of like anonymized, but there is something so interesting about hearing 
other people in a therapy session, when do you get that look into people's lives, like that deep into their lives? Because even I think amongst your friends, there are certain things you might not want to share about what is going on kind of with your mental health or the specifics of situations, like things get really complicated. You know, you don't want to like feel like you have to be careful with your friends, but it's like, well, they know my husband, like they, you know, it's complicated. And so it's so fascinating to kind of see this fairly unvarnished look into like these very intimate issues that people are having. And I think for a lot of people, that does so much to normalize the idea that if you're going through something, even if it's not that exact same thing, that, oh, guess what? We all have these things. You know, you're not a weirdo. You're not damaged. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And I mean, it's health literacy and specifically mental health literacy. When I'm talking to my patients, I'm always trying to educate them on what's going on with their body and and encouraging them to build that health literacy because then they can assess themselves, recognize things in themselves and advocate for themselves. And it's the same with mental health. Unfortunately, there's that whole stigma, keep it private. Don't talk to anybody about it. Don't let others know this. And it stunts our ability to learn, which is how we can help ourselves and help others. So having these looks into mental health sessions, I look at it no differently than somebody who's learning about maybe a disease process or or just building their own health literacy. Before we jump over to Equivalent Exchange, I have one last question for you. Sure. What are your Romance Landia goals for 2020? You mentioned earlier that you would like to write and I guess you were having a conversation with your boyfriend where he was like, you got to put your goals first. <laughs> so what what do you hope to accomplish in 2020? So in 2020, I actually hope to have finished a book and have put it into an editor's hand or, you know, solicited it. I have all of these great ideas and I know how to take care of people really well. It's my career and I do it when I get home. And so I really want to focus on writing because when I write, I feel so happy and I feel so free. And I know that even if I wasn't really successful, if one person liked something and spoke to me the way I speak to authors, that would be so crazy and just so rewarding in an amazing way. So that's one of my biggest goals is just to write and actually finish, finish a book. And then my second goal would be to more consistently post on my Instagram. I'm so inconsistent and I love it. I love Bookstagram so much, but <laughs> I take forever to make a post. I'm just so slow. So I'm hoping to just be a little bit more consistent on there. Other than that, I'm just on Twitter having fun, shooting the shit with people. Those are good goals. So you said you're a pantser, not a plotter. Do you have a plan? So I am making one. And it will happen because he won't let me alone until I actually build a plan because it's so easy to say something and then just be like, it didn't happen, which is what happened in 2019. (laughs) So after him pointing out all the time I made for other people, I mean, I found the 25th hour in every day this year for other people. I will be building a plan so that way more of my time is devoted to what I love, which is creating. Well, he sounds like a very good partner and very much on theme for today's discussion because there's there's actually a very similar 
situation that happens in equivalent exchange about kind of supporting people and uh, pushing them towards things that are going to make them grow in ways that are important to them. Yes, it is a perfect thing. Big shout out to my guy who I know is going to be listening. I actually just like kicked him out of the room because I didn't want him listening to this. It's like, you're going to make me nervous. So big shout out to my hero. Oh, I could not imagine recording with like somebody in the same room other than like somebody else engaged in the conversation, you know? Yes, girl. And he had the nerve to be shocked. I was like, if you don't carry that tail up out of here, shut the door behind you. (laughs) Bye. All right, so let's talk about Equivalent Exchange, which is by Christina C. Jones. Fumi, you want to give the Christina C. Jones intro? Absolutely, and I I hope I do this incredible woman justice. Christina C. Jones is a titan of romance, and more specifically, just on the Mount Rushmore of Black romance. This is her 50th book. I've read 26 of her books, and not a single one has been bad. They run the gambit from sweet to hot. She's written about a bunch of different professions, situations, genres, and they're all exciting and interesting. So, and she's just absolutely lovely, passionate. I don't know what she couldn't write. She's an absolute one-click author. And for people who haven't read Black contemporary romance, you can't go wrong. You could spin around and and just blindly point out a Christina C. Jones book and you're about to get a five-star read. That's a fantastic intro. <laughs> and Equivalent Exchange is about Karis, who is a graphic designer who has just gotten out of a 10-plus year relationship with a giant D-bag named Walter. And some content warnings for this book. There is an incident of sexual assault and intimate partner violence. It doesn't happen on the page, but it's pretty integral to the story. So just prior to the first scenes of the book, Walter has given Karis a black eye and she finds herself kind of at a low point, having lost her job, not living in the place she's lived with Walter for a very long time, feeling at loose ends, finds herself in a bar called Night Shift and ends up flirting a little bit with the bartender. They end up having a really hot one night stand and, you know, things happen. And next thing you know, she is employed by that bartender who, guess what, owns Night Shift, which is not just a bar, but also a brewery, a fledgling brewery. It's a workplace romance that does not fetishize the workplace aspects of it at all, I don't think. It's honestly, it's so chill on the workplace romance front, although it is a workplace romance. And Karis, the owner's name is Lakin, she's very hesitant to get too close to anybody after some trauma in her past, even before her relationship with Walter. And Lakin is super driven to make his business a success and like their workplace chemistry is like also on fire so yeah without spoiling too much that's that's kind of like the premise and I found it to be a very chill romance like there's a lot of dramatic things that happen in this book but not between them in a way that is miscommunication like they have disagreements and they handle them like mature adults and I love that yes I totally agree with you I like the fact that 
when dealing with such heavy heavy topics and what the main characters had gone through or were going through actively the book didn't rely on you know miscommunication tropes there was enough going on in their lives that they needed to unpack and deal with in order to get to their happily ever after so it didn't feel like the book was sidetracked by you know petty things that took away from the meat and the substance that needed to be addressed for them to you know be a viable couple uh by the end of the book there was this one scene where she starts freaking out a little bit because he's I don't want to say coming on a little strong emotionally, but she's she's getting a little freaked out by how close they are becoming emotionally. And he's kind of like, have I asked you for anything? And she's like, no, you haven't. And then they, and then they're like, okay, great. And they move on. And I loved that because because of her history, it totally makes sense for her to start getting freaked out about it. But I loved that that scene resolved with them actually talking about it and being rational and listening to the other person and coming to a logical conclusion that takes into account what they know about the other person. Yes, that was a wonderful scene. And it's totally safe to say he was coming on too, I don't want to say too strong in the sense that it was unwelcome, but it was strong. It was it was whoo strong as heck because you know this book had every could be the makings of just a purely women's fiction book where it was just a woman getting through her life so the the addition of it being a romance and there being this whole other person it could have been hard but christina c jones handled it well and what i did love about the book was he constantly asked her is this too much do you not like this i mean i think even at one point when the, the job interview was happening, he was like, okay. He basically implied, it's okay that you don't want the job. Are you open to just the physical aspects of our relationship? So when he felt like she was shutting that down, he was willing to shut that down with her. I like that there was that constant communication of, is this too much? Is this too much? And and she would think over it and she'd be like, no, I kind of do like it. And, and she'd be honest about it. I needed that in the book because if that wasn't there, he'd actually would suck as a character, in my opinion. Yeah. He'd be way too much if he wasn't actually actively seeking that yes or no to her boundaries. That's very true. And I think that it's clear. So her previous relationship with Walter was also a workplace romance where I don't know if he was her boss per se, but he was more senior in the organization than her. And he really abused that power to control her, both in their relationship and once their relationship implodes. And he's a petty motherfucker. He is like such a villain. There is no redeeming quality to Walter. I don't know. Maybe there are just people like that in real life who are so deep in their own issues. What they express out into the world is just terribleness. It is interesting like how different the dynamic is where Karis's takeaway could have been never have a workplace romance, but how what makes all the difference in the dynamic is the person on the other side of it, where I think it's pretty clear that Lakin, if their relationship ended, would not punish her on the workplace front given that her contributions to the business were fantastic and she was like an integral part of their launch and everything, he did not ever come off like he would ever be petty about it. Yeah. I mean, you're definitely seeing the difference, you know, between someone with some real confidence and someone without it. Because, you know, Walter was the epitome of a of a small-souled being 
who needed to, his existence was based off of, you know, like harvesting the happiness of someone else. But also you've got a woman who's much wiser because, you know, when you dig into that Walter thing, this is also why huge age gaps are something when I see them a lot in romance books, I'm like, how are you going to convince me that this 50 year old man and this 24 year old woman aren't going to have aggressive power dynamic differences that aren't mm. are, are just aren't going to manifest in a relationship you know because he was definitely playing off the fact that this was like one of her first jobs you can assume she probably had like a four-year degree so anywhere between 22 to 24 you know you're just starting your job and there's this 50 year old guy with seniority and he's your mentor and i think they even mentioned it at one point she was like hiding from him mm-hmm. in the office I wonder how much of that was just him wearing down her defenses and her not having the experience and the comfort in the company to be like, back up off me. Or I'm not comfortable with that. Versus this Karis, she's been through a lot. She's survived a lot and she's rebuilding her life the way she wants it with her choice. So she has a lot more in her arsenal to deal with a workplace relationship. You know, she's a completely different person at this point. Mm-hmm. Right. And part of her story, even prior to that relationship with Walter, which was not great, was in fact pretty terrible, was that she was adopted and the couple that adopted her died when she was still quite young and she ended up living with, you know, her grandmother. But the grandmother was not at all invested in emotionally caring for her and was abusive. It was implied that she was like sexually abusive, gave her what could have turned into a lot of shame around sex. And I think particularly with relationships really screwed her up there. And Karis is having a conversation with her therapist at one point about like, why was I with Walter? Why did I stay with him for so long? And basically like the root of that was she didn't believe she deserved anything better. I guess I don't actually deserve anything good. So this is about what I expect, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of her growth over this story is to not be afraid when things are too good. I can totally see that. And I actually highlighted this part when she said, sure, my adult life had gone differently than the struggle I grew up with, a generational struggle I'd been so desperate to escape. And tunnel vision was a bitch, though, because I simply ended up in a different, deceptively worse reality. Okay, so that hit the nail on the head and how you can grow up in a situation that is so sucky and your whole goal in life is I need to not be in this situation that sometimes you just you end up in a situation that's better but better is not good when you were in such a bad area when you had such a bad environment yeah and so I think she did a lot for herself to have a better life And she had that tunnel vision when in reality, she probably needed, and that's so much better. I mean, hindsight's 2020. She probably needed to like dive deep into what she had been through, what her environment was like, get therapy, build up an arsenal. So that way she didn't just go for better. She went for different because, you know, a really warm and safe and loving environment that builds her up is probably something that she has not seen. She's probably only read about it and we can make what we read fairy tales, you know? So Mm -hmm. when I saw that quote, I thought it really summed up trying your hardest to make a better life for yourself when you haven't really experienced what you're going for. So you might do a step better than what you know, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean it's good. 
Yeah. And I think that (laughs) this is something I work through in therapy a lot personally, like a similar theme where some of my learned behaviors are a reaction against something. And, you know, my reaction is to act, to rebel and to resist. And that was something that served me well in a certain situation. But then as I've become an adult, that doesn't serve me as well. And it does, particularly in certain situations, it actually really hurts me. And I think that's with Karis, like that sort of like push it down, move on, don't feel too much. That was what she learned growing up. That's how she survived her childhood, but that wasn't serving her well as an adult. And she had to, yes, as you said, she really needed to like dig into that instead of keeping this like, okay, just just keep moving forward. Just keep moving forward. Don't look back. Don't look back. It's too painful to look back at that. She needed to look at it with a more dispassionate eye and kind of be like, okay, what can I learn from this? And how is this hurting me now and and preventing me from actually moving forward in the healthiest and most positive way for my future. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm a huge proponent of therapy. And I find myself later, later in my life seeking it out. And I was shocked when I went to therapy about how much you you think you're running away from something you grew up with. You're like, oh, I'm going to be successful. I'm not going to be with someone like that. I'm not going to do that. And then someone shows you that tunnel vision shows that those instances, those moments are still very much so controlling your life. Mm -hmm. You're just, you're putting all this energy into not being like that instead of into like existing and loving and being happy and being excited. You're always trying to stop something bad from happening um, instead of enjoying what you have in front of you. With Lakin, she kind of had to learn how to like you're having a good time. You like this man. Let's sink into that. Let's experience that instead of jumping into what could be, what hasn't happened, what we're scared of. Like, what if this is just a good thing right now? Are you going to go after that? Are you going to accept that happiness? For a large part of the book, he really is kind of like too good to be true. He's fantastic. Like he's great in bed. He's emotionally mature He's a little bit of a workaholic, but he's like really passionate and creative and really dedicated to his family. There is nothing wrong with him to the point where, you know, you said earlier, sometimes things that are too good to be true seem like, well, that's a fairy tale. This can't be real life. And I really like how Christina C. Jones actually made that a conversation between the two of them where his ex-wife makes an appearance and he's acting a little weird about it and Karis is acting really unweird about it but she's basically like I'm actually really happy to see you being a little bit weird about this because it proves that you're a human and otherwise I'd be convinced that you don't have normal human emotions about things like of course you're feeling feelings about your ex-wife that you had fertility issues with showing up pregnant of course there's some story there and I I'm happy to see you have some feelings for this woman that you were married to for a long time like it'd be sociopathic for you not to yeah it was such an interesting conversation that they had about that yeah it, it was a real humanizing moment for him because he was very gilded where I was just like what the hell you got 
this amazing dick on command. <laughs> you are seemingly incredibly successful and that family bank account that you probably could fall back on isn't hurting either. And you're just accepting. I mean, this woman shows up to your bar hitting the top shelf whiskey hard with a bruise on her face. And you're actually a good guy who's not taking advantage of her. <laughs> you know, like you want to do right by her. So like you are definitely rocking a big horn in the middle of your forehead. You are a unicorn. So I did love that moment when he was just being weird. And I like that honesty about, yeah, I did tank my marriage. Mm-hmm. I like that honesty because if you are this great, not necessarily why are you single, but it didn't work out with your wife for a reason. I loved I loved that it wasn't um, a blame fest. It was like, this is what I've done wrong. And sidebar, a lot of people don't know that Christina C. Jones' book are like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Everything is connected. So she has written in a joint series called The Connecticut Kings, where she's writing about these football players and people attached to the football team. So this wife has married into that team that she has a series about. Oh my gosh. So does the does she have a book too? She doesn't have a book, but you just never know with Christina C. Jones. She could get a book. She could pop up later. But And, and her universe is attached to like two other amazing authors' universe too. It's, so it's literally like this trove of wonderful Black authors whose books just lightly connect and you're reading it and you hear about this character or they went to this college or they played in this city together and you're just like, oh my God. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so the other two authors, Alexandra Warren and Nicole Falls? Yes. And another one would be Love Belvin would be in her universe too because Love Belvin is a joint series when she wrote Connecticut Kings with Christina C. Jones. So yes, I've been casually reading these authors' books and I'm like, oh wait, they know each other. Or they're using that person's career or, you know, soliciting them for advice or something like that. So it's amazing. That's so intriguing. Like, I always want to know how those things are managed. <laughs> like, I go right to the logistics. I think logistics is the word that pops up the most on this podcast where I'm like, but like, what about the logistics? Tell me about how they do this. Do they have a spreadsheet? I feel like one of the things that makes it so possible is the kind of sisterhood and camaraderie that I've seen in Black Women Indie Romance. It's simply built off the fact that a lot of these authors are doing amazing things. They're writing amazing books. And We can't sit up here and say that they're not getting their flowers. They don't have Netflix knocking on their door. Uh, They're not being optioned in ways like these other authors are just because, you know, there's barriers for people who aren't, you know, just the status quo author. I think when you're being shut out of something, you build your own and you often build together. So a lot of these authors are friends and you see them uplifting each other because they have to. Yeah. There was a conversation on Twitter between Tasha L. Harrison and Rebecca Weatherspoon and a few other people talking about, I think Rebecca Weatherspoon was making a point about how her agent sees her vision, but then some editors are looking at her books and are kind of like, I don't know. I don't get it. How can we make this more palatable for a different audience? Girl, yeah, yes, I could go on and on about that. It's, mm, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, you can, and I speak specifically from my lens, which is I usually I read a lot of heterosexual books and I'm black, so that's where I'm coming from. But I can tell very easily when the editor wasn't black. 
I can tell very easily when the publishing company, it's like sometimes a lot of black romance read like Michelle and Barack, mm. which I mean, they're amazing and they're black and you love them, but they're just like one type of black person, <laughs> you, you know, and they're like the socially accepted black people. And so a lot of the books, I feel like ascribe to that. They don't allow us the dynamicy that they allow other characters. And so I can see where Rebecca Weatherspoon's coming from, where, I mean, people will scratch their head and say, I just don't see it. And it's like, is it for you to see or ask yourself why you don't see it? it? You know, it's not because the writing isn't right. It's not because there isn't an audience for this or this type of character doesn't exist. It's more of a reflection of your environment and your knowledge of another type of person. Yeah, I definitely keep coming back to this phrase that is used fairly frequently now, which is it's something along the lines of maybe this book isn't for you. And I will admit the first time hearing that phrase, I'm like, what do you mean this book isn't for me? Not because not because I think every book should be for me. But I think the gut reaction is, shouldn't books be for everyone? And I think the point of it, and the point that like, I think when I first heard it defensively moved right past was it can be not for you. That doesn't mean you can't read it and you can't enjoy it. And it's like, I worry about sounding a bit too much like reading books by people whose experience is different than yours or books about people whose experience is different than yours. I don't want to make it sound like, and they're here to educate us. But I think it's more just like, in general, all literature, all fiction is about exposing you to a different view on life. And why would you want to just continually immerse yourself in the same eyes that you view the world through? Just like basically just revalidating the same ideas you already have. What's interesting about listening to other people's therapy sessions? What's interesting about reading books by people who are very different than you is your growing your experience of the world and it's makes you a better human I think I agree I, I think it's like enriching your life it, that's how I look at it like when I get to read about another culture or experience it enriches my life and my interactions so you know I, I feel like even though I, this is for pleasure I come out of this with a better understanding of people of experiences of cultures I handle it better in real life because I've opened my mind you know, to that possibility. So yeah, it can be jarring for people, especially if everything has, if a lot of stuff is for you, for someone to say it might not be for you. It's like Sex in the City. I love Sex in the City. And there's not a moment of that show that I think is for me because <laughs> I just do not relate. And But when I watch Insecure, I know I feel like she she typed my name. I feel like I'm in the credits. I'm like, Issa Rae, mm -hmm. you must have been at brunch with me and my friends last week. I know that's for me. I also have a plethora of friends of different races who have found it enjoyable. And they might not always know what's going on, but they can look it up and get their laugh maybe a little later, but they can get their laugh and enjoy it. So, you know, it was the same way when I was a kid reading Gossip Girl. I didn't understand about these Upper East Side people in New York. I'm from the Midwest. I didn't know anything they were talking about. So it was me and Tumblr, like, what do, is a preppy person? What is this? And then I found out about this whole other, you know, culture, this whole other life. And still had a good time reading a book that it had nothing to do with me. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not like we read a James Bond novel and are like, I don't know. I just can't relate to this lifestyle of a different woman in a, 
every mission and shooting people. I don't know. I just don't get it. We don't do that. So so why is it so hard? You know, it's it's whew, why is it so hard? It's as hard as that person wants us to be. I'm at that big age where when I see someone just being really resistant, I'm like, okay, that's just who you are. This is the grown choice that you are making. And uh, I don't have I don't have any part in that mm-hmm. because I can't spend time wondering why someone won't open their mind to another person's experience because then it starts to hurt you. It does start to hurt you, especially if you're on the side of that diversity. It's I can't plead a case for you to understand me. I only want to talk to people who genuinely are trying or are already there because it can be a sacrifice to your own mental health to deal with just a very resistant grown person. It's kind of like just empathy, right? Like there's kind of these like cultural differences or, you know, experiences on a more macro level. And then on a micro level, like literally every individual, even ones who have very similar demographics or whatever to you, socioeconomic status, whatever, similar cultural experience, they also see the world differently. And if you literally cannot ever have empathy for somebody whose experience is different like how do you relate to literally one other human being on earth if you cannot consider that two people in the same room can have vastly different takes on what happened in a situation so i mean that's like a very micro level example but it's the same issue Mm -hmm. and i think one of the reasons why i'm so shut down about it is that they can because there's you know if i put 30 white people around each other they're not the same just like if I put 30 black people around each other they're not the same and we can recognize those differences you're not going through life not accepting differences and not recognizing differences but when you look at a certain person and you choose not to understand that perspective because it's a choice I mean if you have two kids you can probably recognize the difference between one and the other so in your own social milieu you're doing the work and then refusing outside of it So that's why when I meet a grown person who's resistant, I'm like, oh no, I won't even get into that. I'm not trying to change your mind. You are who you are. Have a wonderful day because it's a, it's a super big choice. I could not see them going through life and not doing that in their own social circle, you know, Mm -hmm. bless the people who can do that work. (laughs) It makes me feel angry or, or sad. And I've got a limited amount of time on this earth and I don't want to spend it that way. Yes. And that makes me think of the phrase, I have no more spoons to give, which Mm -hmm. I was uh, educated about by Amanda Deal. You know, basically like you only have so many spoons. So what are you going to spend your spoons on? Yeah. You know, and to relate it back to the book, there was a part that I loved when it was right after, so obviously spoiler, his, his father passes. He's not emoting. He's shutting her out. And so he pops back up. And is like, so will you wait for me while I'm trying to get through this? And she's like, no, I won't do that. I love the fact that she was like, I want the best for you and I want us to work, but it won't be at the sacrifice of what I need. It won't be at the sacrifice of what I've worked so hard to get back. You know, mm-hmm. she gave him that no and really put him in the spot where he it was like, are you going to let something good go? I mean, I know it can't be perfect, but are you willing to try and keep what you have as you get through what you're going through? So I love the fact that she looked at her spoons and said, you're not getting that spoon. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like totally surprising that Lakin's father ends up dying, that his health issues were there from the beginning. But I think it was 
set up like, oh, we, you know, we need to get him to the doctor. Maybe he's just experiencing Alzheimer's or dementia. And it does seem to happen kind of suddenly in the book. And it definitely comes as a shock to Lakin. It just happens so fast to him. And he has a bit of a martyr complex. I think that's like his major fault. And that's kind of why he's like so good at everything else is because he is so attuned to solving everyone else's problems. But when it comes to solving his own, not problem, but dealing with his own grief, he's bad at it. And I love that this book that has primarily up to this point kind of been Lakin is pretty amazing and perfect and it's kind of all about Karis getting over her stuff then there's this switch as you said it's not like Karis just abandons her own work it's very true to her own journey but at the same time it shows that equivalent exchange that's happening where it's like okay look this isn't just about you helping me through my stuff, I'm here for you for your stuff, and this is gonna hurt, but this is what needs to happen right now. This is how I can help you. He definitely needed to be like jolted out of that downward spiral of ignoring the grief. Yeah, it was like really powerful, and I loved that. Sometimes romance novels have one character having most of the emotional growth and it's almost like the other character is just pretty much fine to begin with and they're there to help the other person through it. I like that this book had both of them growing. Yeah, I agree. And you know what's wild? I was in New York. I take a pilgrimage to New York with my guy and we're in a black comic and just geek culture group that we all met through undergrad. And so we all meet up because we live across the country in New York for New York Comic Con. And they had asked me what I was reading because whenever we'd be on the trains, because we were like staying in Jersey and we'd have like an hour commute, you know, into Manhattan or whatever, I would be reading. I told them what I was reading after it was over and I said equivalent exchange and they're like, did someone die? <laughs> um, and they immediately got into the trope because they, they knew the anime it was referencing. And so when I told them about it, they were like, oh yeah, I could totally. So like she really just with the, just with the title kind of told us what was going to happen. Just we didn't know. Because I told my my guy, who doesn't necessarily read, he doesn't read romance, but he did watch all of Full Metal Alchemist, which is where equivalent exchange comes from. He was just like, oh yeah, talking to me about um, basically how like a parent died in it and the sacrifice that happened and that sacrifice that had to happen and they had to, the hard lessons they had to learn. So she really slipped one in on us. <laughs> oh, Christina, I can't be mad. Yeah. Can't be mad at her. No, I can't either. One thing I really wanted to touch on that I loved about this book was that people who are going through things can still have happy things. And a lot of books, I think a lot of times in life, women feel like they need to have everything together. There's so many shows. Why don't you have a guy? And and in that show, they will give that woman a therapist, a dietitian, a, a makeover, a financial planner. And I think a lot of times with guys, they come as they are with what they're going through. And they, they need you to accept them. There's this big culture of, for women of like being worthy. I like the fact that she was figuring it out. She was building and it was rough. And she still is deserving of love and respect and attention. You can be dealing with your mental health and in a lower point in your life. And you can still have the best, the best treatment. You can still have support. I love that this book showed 
happily ever after for a woman who was, you know, who was trying. I think a lot of times in romance books, you saw men who were going through it and like amazing gilded women just rocking with them through all of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, what about when we're going through something? Do we get a happily ever after? Do we get an orgasm when we're also depressed? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? So it, it was refreshing. Yeah. And to touch on the sex for a moment, it was just so good. Lakin was like this like dream partner who it was like his personal mission to make sure that the woman he's with, whether he's emotionally invested in that relationship or not, is like having a great time. And like not in a like, I need to prove my manliness way. Just in a, I really care about this other human in this situation and I would never want to engage in a sexual act with this person without them enjoying it as much as I do. And yeah, he, he just like was all in. That's honestly Lakin. He's all in on everything. Yeah, that's, this is a very intense man. And just to put it the way that I need to put it, he fucked the shit out of her. And I'm a better person for it. And today when I was like, let me put on my little critical monocle and read this a little bit more thoroughly than when I first did, I was just like, yo, he is not coming to play. And you're right. He just was having a damn good time and doing a damn good job while he was doing it. I actually put a note in my Kindle app when she asked him, what are you doing? And I put as a response, snatching that soul, girl. Like if you kismet, whatever you want to call it, he put that on her. And if that had happened to me, you know that scene in Little Mermaid when she's just signing her name mm-hmm. and looking away? Mm-hmm. Like that, that would be me. Like, what do you need? This next check? A co-sign on a loan? <laughs> a kidney what do you need because that's the kind of stuff he was putting down on her i was like dude i don't know what you're brewing in that beer but it is potent it is potent i was talking to somebody who shall remain anonymous recently and they were talking about an experience they had with somebody that was extremely intense and this person was saying he was just so amazing in bed and I was like what was it like what was it about him like technical skill enthusiasm emotional bond like what was it that made this guy so good and she was like it was all of those he was paying attention he was enthusiastic he had no shame attached he wasn't afraid to do anything he was there to have a good time and make you have a good time and so you have a good time I feel like so many times people get in their own heads about sex they stop themselves from having fun they stop their partner from having fun because then their partner's like well I guess I need to be in my own head too here and I feel like that was Lakin he he was just definitely paying attention to responses and tailoring everything he did to his partner oh yeah he was so intense you know a book is real good when it throws you into a flashback and this book had me staring off at work remembering my own forays through undergrad because I was just like yo this guy is so intense and you know whoever that lovely anonymous person who nailed it on the head is they're right there's just a like fuck it intensity that can happen in the bedroom and when it does I talk in memes so I will literally send you this meme if you don't know it but you will come away from that situation. Like, have you seen that that fox just sitting, contemplating its life, a little frazzled? 
maybe, but I now I need to see it. I'll put it in the show notes too. Yes, I will send it to you. And that's really how you come away. Just shook. You're like, oh my God, what's my first name? What just happened? And you probably will spend the better part of a month. You're writing your name and you just kind of zone out to that moment. And that was Lakin. Like <laughs> he is an intense man and it definitely was a benefit in the bedroom. And I love that about her because Karis is just like, so I'm supposed to resist this when they were uh, having sex. And she was just like, God damn, this man, this man. <laughs> right. Because at first she's like, oh, now he's going to make me give him a blowjob. And, and he's like, nope, mm-hmm. I'm going downtown on you, lady. And she's like, oh, oh, oh. And so on and so forth. Yep. And she, I don't, and I don't blame her for hightailing it after that because I would have been... <laughs> You know, full disclosure, I had a very intense moment that happened to me my junior year in college. Shout out to my best friend who worked at Chipotle. I literally showed up at Chipotle, ordered food just so I could get to the point he was in the line and be like, we have to talk because I had to just run up out of that apartment. I'm like, what the hell just happened? I got to go talk to somebody. I got to go figure my life out. I need to go get in my own bed. I need to process this. Exactly. So the fact that she, you know, stuffed those panties in her back pocket and gave him the peace sign. I was like, girl, I'm, I understand. You you got to figure it out. So Karis is very attractive. And I wanted to talk about something that is dropped very casually at the very beginning of the story and never really mentioned again, but I thought it was very interesting. And Karis says very early in the book that she has breast implants. Yep, I knew it. Yes, you're going to say. She acknowledges very bluntly that she puts a lot of effort into her physical appearance being just so. Like she knows she's hot because she better be after all the work that she puts into it. And I thought this was super interesting because there was an article on Frolic not too long ago where somebody was talking about how cosmetic surgery is often used as a signal in romance novels that somebody is like shallow and superficial and like a villainess in a lot of ways Mm. um like oh wow you're like so invested in your physical appearance what else do you have to offer so i thought this was a very interesting because it was so very casual like we understand that the more the book goes on you kind of understand why karis's physical presence that she presents to the world is an armor and that makes sense for her it is just i think her way of controlling her situation but yeah i I guess it's like i don't really have like a point other than to say it (laughs) i think it's like very interesting and Hmm. and it's not judgmental yeah it wasn't judgmental you know the way that i actually took i took it very differently i thought it was a sign of her abuse oh not that getting a breast implant is the sign of abuse like for most people, but in domestic violence, uh, you see a lot of crazy control exerted over the, the woman's appearance. They have to always have the hair in place and look a certain way. A lot of women who are in those situations are spending lots of time, money, and effort to not having a hair out of place. And it's a game because all that time you spend perfecting it and they're going to find something. That's that's the whole yeah. the sick point of it. And so I had wondered, and I think all that stuff was mentioned so closely to the, uh, the fresh abuse, you know, mm-hmm. that I wondered if it was the remnants of that. Like I'm sure Walter 
expected her to present herself. To stay young and hot and mm-hmm. yeah. So I wondered if that was actually, you know, kind of a reference to that. Yeah, that's so interesting and does make sense. And I think Christina did a really good job too of making sure that it wasn't one of those situations where the guy was like, you don't have to do this. I like that you just sub- you just look up and the outfits were a little bit more casual and the hair was a little bit more natural and the makeup wasn't um, necessarily heavy. I just felt like as the time progressed, she just was freeing herself to just exist. And so, you know, if she dressed up, it was because she chose to present that that day, not because anybody had, you know, an expectation. I liked that it was her own journey that had nothing to do with him. He liked whatever was put in front of his face. You know, he wasn't complaining about anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I do like that her physical look and journey with that, with her body and um, I guess kind of like the strict maintenance that she had been doing in the beginning. I like that that was her own thing because mm-hmm. I, I really hate, I hate when the growth physically stems from the guy's praise. Like, you don't have to wear all that makeup. Mm-hmm. I like you just the way you are. I'm like, I don't know. I just, I'm like, is it sustainable when it's based in another person? <laughs> yeah. It's just another way of saying you should look like this to meet my approval. Yeah. So I, I you know, I, I did enjoy that a lot. This book, you know, this book for me is like, the best of two worlds. It's like the best of romance and the best of women's fiction, mm. which I know that there can be a lot of drama between the two genres, but they both exist for their own reasons and give people their own forms of enjoyment and, and knowledge. But I think that I got just as much from these two coming together as I got from like that therapy session at the end. When That gave me all the life I needed in 2019. Just to, it didn't have him in it. I loved having a moment with her and this licensed professional where she was just like, I'm happy. I'm a work in progress. I'm having a good time. Look how far I've come. It was just her moment, you know? And while he was in that, in the sense that he was a subject, it was just for her. If the book ended there, which isn't a traditional romance, that would have been more women's fiction. I still would have been at the rooftop, like you go girl. So I loved that. We got to experience just a woman more than just surviving, but, you know, just living and, and just being so happy. And I was woo, seeing that therapist and that conversation. I could reread that a thousand times. Yeah, it was definitely, it was beautiful. Any final thoughts on this? I guess just on a personal note, this was a really amazing book for me. I understood kind of where she was coming from, where it's like you've been through a lot and you've got something good. And now you've got to simultaneously juggle a lot of hats. You've got, she's balancing, build, rebuilding her career, rebuilding herself and, and this fledgling love and how it is possible to make it all happen. And I always am just going to shout out Christina C. Joan and the other authors who are also promoting women to, it's okay to not be able to handle it all on your own. You can get help from you know a therapist a psychologist a social worker whoever can give you that i just really appreciated that this book and it was also just incredibly hot and enjoyable at the same time so you know usually you only get that kind of stuff in like the heaviest of heaviest of books but the fact that i can laugh and blush but also get you know a little teary-eyed so it was a very fulfilling and dynamic book i 
I think I know what your answers are going to be, but what would you give equivalent exchange one to five for heat? You know, so for me, I'm going to give equivalent exchange like a four in heat with the fact that I don't read a lot of erotica. So I know for some people (laughs) this won't be a four. But I usually am always at a three to four. And so this is a this was a four for me. It was hot. The sex was sizzling. When I was rereading this book, I had to keep telling myself, get to the other parts. You just got off work. You have to be on this call at a certain time. And you keep reading these sex scenes leisurely like you got all day. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so what about humor? So on humor... Yeah, I'm gonna give this a two. I won't. I didn't laugh that much during this book. It wasn't funny to me, so that's no shade because it was ultra enjoyable. But this is not a book I would call funny. We were dealing with a lot of heavy stuff. Yeah, there was a lot of enjoyable banter. Like at one point, Lakin is thinking, "If she was supposed to be the love of my life or something, that was definitely good to know." Levity was important quality, like because she made him laugh. I feel like there were definitely rhetorical humor throughout yeah it was enjoyable it was like there was like enjoyable yeah. moments i was like okay this is light this is cute but i wasn't laughing out loud it was not a rom-com for sure agreed it was not a rom-com people who love to use that term for everything it was not a rom-com <laughs> this is the one book on earth that's not a rom-com just the one yep <laughs> and what about angst hmm yeah on angst Ooh, that kind of i guess that really does kind of depend on um how this triggers you, I think. So for me on angst, it was like a three, three to four. Like it was really heavy, but it also did a really good job of just like tying things up and dealing with them. So I wasn't say I was on the edge of my seat, like it was intense, but the themes were heavy. So there was an arc, but I feel like a lot of the angstier situations were presented and resolved themselves without drawing it out in such a way that you felt tortured, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. It, it wasn't like gut-wrenching, even though there was rough things happening or they were dealing with rough moments in their life in the book. Yeah. It was really good pacing for that because she did a good job of like introducing things. Like at the perfect time, she'd be like, so this happened, so this happened. So you you had time to digest things. You know, it wasn't like bam, bam, bam. Oh my God, everything's happening at once. Yeah. Let's pull into Trope Town. We are giving book recommendations for romance novels that have the theme of therapy, healing, and growth. We put this out fairly last minute on social media and got instantly a lot of fantastic recommendations. And Hannah Hart's romance was like, I'm so excited for this. So, you know, let's not keep her in suspense. She also had some great recommendations. So, Fumi, what were your recommendations for this theme? Ooh, okay, I'm ready. So, my first recommendation is going to be Care For Me by Bria Felician. But, ooh, I just read this book and I did a review on it. It is so wonderful and it deals with a man who is dealing with PTSD and just is having a hard time grappling with his mental health and it's you know it's it's falling into the relationship and so he has to get therapy and basically say how can i not ruin what i love right now i don't even know how to <laughs> how to broach it so it was just so beautiful it was i believe it was new adult i just loved it it touched me 
It touched me so strongly. So Care For Me by Bria Felician. Then Determining Possession, which is by Christina C. Jones. And it's in the Connecticut King series that I mentioned. The protagonist is a woman who, while it's not necessarily like I'm going to therapy, the whole theme of this book is growth. She had a hard end to her relationship in the book. And I was thinking to myself, how are you going to break up with somebody who you're about to marry in this book? And by the end of it, convince me they're ready to be with somebody for the rest of their life. But she did it. So kudos to Christina C. Jones for taking a skeptical woman to the happily ever after. But the main character, she experienced a lot of growth. And her partner was also dealing with death. So it was wonderful to see them get to the place in their lives where they could love each other. So Determining Possession by Christina C. Jones in the Connecticut King series. And Encore for Love by Alexandra Warren which the man in the book is had a really hard pass, lots of self-sabotaging behavior he did, which caused him to do his leading lady wrong some years prior. Now he's trying to get her back. So it's a second chance at love kind of thing. And she's actually not that open to him going to therapy and he has to get her right about it. So that's kind of a different thing because usually you get that like healer woman in books and like, I just Mm -hmm. want you to, you know, but she kind of had to open her eyes. So An Encore for Love by Alexander Warren. And then In His Corner, I said that like that was the last book, but I have one more after this. (laughs) Corner by Alexander Warren, which definitely deals with a guy who has been through a lot in his past, just actively dealing with the abuse of his father. And he gets into a quick relationship that gets very serious, very fast. And he's got some self-sabotage behavior. And his girl is like, oh, no, you're not about to hurt me because you all know how to deal with yourself. So that was a good one. And lastly would be Someone Seeking Someone Else by Nicole Falls, which has a main character who grapples with anxiety. And it's really subtle, but she has a therapist and she uses different interventions, whether it's family meditation or the own tools she's built with her therapist to kind of grapple with the life changes that come with falling fast for someone. And, you know, that intense partner who's like, I'm ready. And she's like, but I'm not. So mm-hmm. those are my picks for books that deal with this theme or, or go with go with it. I'm excited to check all those out. And I will put this list of books in the show notes. So mine is also a very direct tie to therapy. And it's Penny Reed's Beard in Mind. Have you read anything by Penny Reed? I believe I have. Did she do the knitting? Yes, Knitting in the City. I did. Yes. I think that a lot of her characters, she's had a good number that are neurodiverse. And in this book, Beard in Mind, which is part of the Winston Brothers series, which is kind of an offshoot of the Knitting in the City series, it's Shelley and Bo. And Shelley has this like OCD sensory disorder that she's really I mean she's really having a hard time kind of like functioning socially and there are like intense therapy sessions in this book and Bo ends up helping her quite literally with her therapy and it's a really interesting story about how their relationship helps Shelly and how Bo is very supportive and I think it's really important for Shelly to have somebody in her life who doesn't see her as a freak because of this issue. And she's been holding people away for a long time. They're both mechanics, but she also does really 
cool art with welding and stuff. So it's, it's a really interesting book. From social media, on Instagram, Hannah Hart's Romance recommended, and some of these books have been recommended before for other tropes. So some of these are familiar. So A Duke by Default by Alyssa Cole, Teach Me by Olivia Dade, and I'm actually covering Teach Me on an upcoming episode with Denise Williams. So I'm pretty psyched about that. Mm-hmm. Fall by Kristen Callahan. Serving Pleasure by Alicia Rye. And this one actually just came up on... Oh, it was Neighbors. There was like a neighbor situation there. Best of Luck by Kate Claiborne, which is in the Chance of a Lifetime series. And B in her books also wrecked the Chance of a Lifetime series. And uh, Kate Claiborne is also... Was just my guest on the podcast for the Thanksgiving episode that, as we record this, is about to air next week. Yeah. And uh, B in her books also recommended Getting Schooled by Christina C. Jones. Yeah. I love that this is a theme that she's explored quite a bit. Yeah. You know, 50 books in the game. Yeah. You almost have to ask yourself what she hasn't touched on. <laughs> True. <laughs> and then Amanda, Spa Amanda underscore four on Instagram, recommended Get a Life, Chloe Brown, and Work For It, both by Talia Hibbert. And Hero by Lauren Rowe. Those are wonderful recommendations. And hey, Amanda, your participation on my bookstagram is always so pleasing. I'm so happy you uh, gave us some book recs. All right. So the full list will be in the show notes. All right, Fumi, we are ready to hear your write this book. Now, I know you are trying to write your own books, So is your write this book an idea that you are actually going to try to write yourself or is this one that you're you're not actually going to try to write and you're going to like give up to somebody else? So it's definitely not my place to write this book that I want to read. And I'm just never the type of person to give up what's in the bag. I might be slow to the punch, but it's my own bag. So this is a book that I want somebody to do so I can read it a thousand times over. All right, go for it. Okay, so ever since I was in middle school, shout out to my my best friend um, from middle school, Faria. She um, is Indian and she loved Bollywood, which I had never heard of or seen. So when I would go over to her house, we would watch Bollywood movies. And I have since become just absolutely obsessed with Bollywood movies and Bollywood stars. I'm constantly watching them, looking up stuff in the tabloids about them, (laughs) watching four-hour movies with dance sequences and crying. So I love those books. So I really would love to see an enemies to lover romance featuring two Bollywood stars who something in the past happened on set And they've hated each other ever since. It's been in the movies. And basically, their agents are like, you guys have to do this movie. Like something makes them have to work together. I want it full of crackling chemistry, which I will say in a lot of Bollywood movies, they are not very explicit. Yeah. I want this to be explicit, but that's just my own thing. I I love explicit books. So uh, I want them to have crackling chemistry. And obviously, you know, they're trying to resist, but they can't. And they've got that close set proximity. So yeah, I'm just dying to see that happen with lush scenery. I want a whole bunch of cultural references that aren't italicized that force me to expand my own knowledge. And I, I, you know, I want to see these two feuding stars get together. 
I love it. Did you know that I just got back from India? Yes, I saw that you just got back from <laughs> India and I was ultra jealous and also very, very proud of your ability to deal with that time change. Oh my God, this past week has been real rough. <laughs> I have not gotten a lot of sleep this past week. But on our last day, we went to Remoji Film City, which is basically like Universal Studios for Bollywood, or at least in the region we we're in, which was Hyderabad. So I learned there's different Bollywood regions. So there's like Bollywood and Dollywood and Mollywood. It was so amazing. I'm not actually adding anything right now. I'm just gushing about how much fun I had. And it was such an amazing, interesting experience. Yeah, I literally have nothing interesting to say about this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's getting cut. I'm just like, did you know that I went to India? No, I love it. I mean, can you come back from a trip and not like inject it everywhere? Because when I come back from my travels, I'm just like, yeah, guys, so this is that. And they're like, we get it. You left the country. You ate good. Are you going to give me more than that? Because I haven't been and it doesn't tell me anything. I'm just like, this is amazing. I know. Oh, so because I was in India, I read Bollywood Bride by Snolly Dev. And I didn't finish it until I got home, unfortunately, but I do feel like there were aspects of the book. I mean, like regionally, the main character in Bollywood Bride lives in like Mumbai and like the region of India I was in was completely different. But I feel like having been immersed in the culture for like a week and then like reading about similar cultural experience I was like oh oh, I get it I get it I get it I had some touch points which was interesting yeah it definitely helps when you're not flying blind yeah we're able to kind of relate it to some sights and sounds and experiences that you'd had in the flesh so I mean that's only going to make a story better when you can be like oh yeah I I see where they're going with that you know Yeah, I think particularly one of the things I did a lot of in India was try on clothes. And uh, it's so much fun shopping for clothes and getting to understand the different garments and how you combine them. And I feel like in Bollywood Bride, there was actually a lot of discussion about the proper items of clothing to wear in a situation, particularly because she was with her American family members who were having this like traditional Indian wedding in the Chicago area. And so they were a little bit more removed from some of the clothing items. They were less familiar with them and she was kind of guiding them. So I thought that was interesting as well. Yeah, I totally understand that. I'm Nigerian, but I've grown up in the Midwest my whole life. I've not had the opportunity to go back and meet my family in Nigeria. So while I I feel very Nigerian, as I loom closer to the potential of my own self getting married one day. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to swing a good traditional version of this when I don't, not necessarily in my day to day. And while I know about a lot, I wouldn't say I execute a lot. Mm -hmm. So I definitely understand that. Thanks for listening to episode 14 of Shelf Love, a romance novel book club. Thank you so much to Fumi for joining me on this episode. You should check out the show notes for where you can find Fumi online and to read the essay that she wrote about Beverly Jenkins. You can find me on social media at Shelf Love Podcast on Instagram and at Shelf Love Pod on Twitter. You can always reach me directly at Andrea at ShelfLovePodcast.com. And if you'd like to get occasional updates, you can sign up for my email list on my website, ShelfLovePodcast.com. Here's what is coming up on future episodes. I'm going to be reposting one of my earlier episodes on December 24th. So if you have been with us from the beginning, 
that might be a repeat, but if you haven't, hopefully it's new to you. Then on December 31st, I will be releasing the 2019 Superlatives episode. More on that in a second. After that, romance editor Norma Perez Hernandez and I get tropetastic as we discuss recovery, sweet dogs, and moving upstate after reading Sanctuary by Rebecca Weatherspoon. Other upcoming books and guests include Kat Jackson's discussion of Alyssa Cole's and Unconditional Freedom, Denise Williams reading Olivia Dade's Teach Me, and Penny Reed joins me to discuss A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Moss. Now, more info on the Superlatives episode. B and her books, Librarian Extraordinaire, will join me to discuss readers' totally subjective favorite romance novels that they read in the last year. From now until December 20th, you can send a super specific superlative for your favorite romance read of 2019 by email or via audio recording. It absolutely does not matter what year the book was published, just that you read it in 2019. You can visit shelflovepodcast.com contribute to find more examples and more details. I'm looking forward to hearing your favorites from 2019 and sharing them with everybody else. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, I really do want to hear from you. I truly enjoy getting personal messages, hearing what you enjoyed on the podcast or what you were thinking about later. And, you know, I also enjoy seeing new ratings and reviews pop up on Apple Podcasts. So definitely feel free to do that too. Shelf Love is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts.